feel like you were born in the wrong era? Do you pine for a time gone by? Well, you've come to the right place. I'm Kaya Handley. Welcome to This Retro Life. While I scour blogs and social media and vintage stores around the world to find interesting people with amazing vintage stories, I often get excited when I find a passion for old things that's a little bit quirky, that goes beyond fashion or music or dancing. And today, I need to introduce you to someone with an awesomely nerdy vintage passion, and I say that completely with love, calling all comic book fans and people like me who know absolutely nothing about comics and can use a lesson, because this week I'm introducing you to vintage comic book aficionado John Morris, who, thanks to his parents, really had no choice but to find a passion for comics. I was raised in a house uh, full of old comics, both of my parents collected and read before I was born. My father was German. When he came to the U.S., he didn't speak or read English at all. And uh, he learned to read from comic books and talk from television. And my mother was a a science fiction and fantasy fan. And uh, she not only collected comics, but when she was an adult, she was a teacher primarily in places like California's juvenile detention facilities or in low-income schools. And she would use characters like the Legion of Superheroes, Teen Titans, Superboy, teenage characters who were about the same age as her students that she could use as examples uh, for encouragement. So I already had 30, 35 years worth of comic books in my house when, when I was an infant, much less growing up. Wow, that is quite a collection. It was interesting. Uh, my parents had very different tastes. I had different tastes, and then they would just sort of pick up random stuff over the decades. So we were as likely to have, say, Conan and Star Trek as Uncle Wiggly, <laughs> and uh, any comic with an exclamation for a name. If it was exciting or thrilling, it would have been in the stack somewhere. So my pop was into, um, I guess, dumb adventure. He left me quite a Conan collection. <laughs> and my mom really veered towards, she liked really good art, among other things. So she did tend to, to veer towards the superhero uh, sci-fi stuff. We hear it quite a lot with vinyl records. When our parents have collections of those, mm-hmm. we... We marvel at them from afar, but we're really not allowed to touch them. Was that the case with the comics, or were, were you allowed to be hands-on? <laughs> well, so my parents had not really heard about collecting when I was a kid, but I grew up in the 80s, and that's really when the, the direct market and the speculators market in the U.S. went nuts. As you are when you're around 10 or 11, you start getting really obsessive about some kind of knowledge or another so that you can be an expert on something. And for me, it was comics. So not only did I get to fiddle with them and read them, But I was responsible for teaching my dad how to bag, board, catalog. I told him what price guides were and uh, how to complete collections. (laughs) So I I quickly became sort of the custodian of the collection. You were the curator. They were bankrolling your your collection. (laughs) They basically funding it. (laughs) Did you find sort of an interesting medium between their two passions that then you were able to channel your passion into? I do find myself really drawn to those genres. Occasionally we'll draw comics myself and they they do tend to have science fiction or barbarian elements uh, just because they're so visually delightfully iconic and there's a lot of great room for experimentation. But um, for me, it was really about learning to love the medium and it's gone beyond superheroes for me. I haven't really read a contemporary superhero comic in a while and that's because There's so much more interesting stuff going on outside of the world of superheroes as far as contemporary comics literature is going. 
And there's so much really interesting stuff in the history of superhero comics that hasn't been explored yet. So I like to find myself in those two fields rather than just keeping up with whatever the latest story is. This love has inspired a lot of what John Morris does in his life and work. He himself is a cartoonist, he's written books about vintage comics and the interesting characters you find. And in 1997, before the internet really took off, he started a blog called Gone and Forgotten. It's all about highlighting the comic heroes that were created in earlier decades but didn't become as popular as some of the superheroes we know and love today. Or, as John puts it... What I unkindly called when I started doing it, the bottom of the comic book barrel. <laughs> Initially, the focus of Gone and Forgotten was the terrible, the cheesy, the cringeworthy characters, but over time, it's become so much more than that. And I was focusing on terrible stuff, because it's very easy to find comic book stories that are silly or not very well done, or offensive, that's incredibly easy to find. But as time has passed, I've tried to turn that more into elevating long-ignored characters, or better yet, creators whose work deserves a, another chance to be looked at. There are artists I've only personally discovered, I know other people know about them, uh, in comics that just are barely known these days. There's a cartoonist named Charles Voigt, who worked in the 1940s extensively. He had, at the time he was working in comics, an incredibly popular newspaper strip called Betty. That was, I don't remember how many, but I ran in a few hundred newspapers. And yet he was there in comic books turning out these kind of silly superhero adventures or uh, the kind of things you get in, in 1940s comics where a man is struck by an atomic ray beam and he grows into a giant and then he has to fight other giant aliens who straddle planets. A story that, in other words, would have been completely forgotten from this one-time successful and popular artist's oeuvre if somebody wasn't out there digging it up. And here's the thing. I really know nothing about comics. I can't tell you the difference between DC and Marvel. The only comic strip I used to read as a kid was an Australian one called Ginger Megs, and that's because I liked he also had red hair. So I asked John Morris to delve into the history of comics to take us right back to the beginning. Comic books were really just a packaging medium for newspaper strips. So Mutton Jeff or The Gumps or other popular comic strips of the day would be packaged up uh, either together or in their own titles, reprinted, sold at newsstands. But it wasn't until the mid-30s that they started doing original content. And that tended to be action-adventure and pulp. You'd get a lot of sailor stories. I seem to recall, I can't remember if it's detective comics or in early action comics, but where every character in the comic that, that didn't have a superhero kind of origin had a name like Chip Dash, Lance Strong, Tough Brick, just names like that. But it was all like, you know, two-fisted, sleeves-rolled-up kind of tough guy pulp adventure. Until 1938... Superman debuts in Action Comics number one, starts the superhero genre. That takes comic books from being either a repackaging or just kind of a, a cousin to the pulp novel and turns it into a phenomenon. And from that point on, superheroes have like an unbroken 10-year streak of popularity. They bust out of comics almost immediately. There's prose novels, movie serials. Of course, there's some famous Superman cartoons, um, which... Cartoons were hard to produce back then, so it's not surprising there were more than just Superman. But they suddenly blow up, and even though there's a, a dip in their popularity in the 1950s, 
they come back and superheroes maintain sort of a, a dominance in this medium to the modern day. But behind the superheroes, which, you know, mm-hmm. who, are, who are probably getting the most attention, there were other streams of comic books being written at the same time and trying to be the next big thing, even though they never quite got to that level of superheroes. With the early comics, too, a lot of the creators are very young, or a lot of the creators, they don't have a rule book. They've just really started writing stories for comics. So they try everything. There's a lot of comics that kind of are like superheroes, but the rules aren't written for superheroes yet, so it might be a guy in a costume, and then nothing else makes sense. There's a, a fellow named Captain Wizard that you might really enjoy. I also love that you could just call him the Wizard, but he apparently has a rank. <laughs> so Captain Wizard apparently has superpowers, because he wears a, a red long john and a blue cape, and can fly and such. But in his first adventure, he accidentally hijacks an airplane to a a city that exists in the clouds. And he finds out there's duplicates of every living human being up there, except they're of opposite personality types. Uh That includes meeting a nice Hitler. And the kindly old professor they were traveling with turns out to be the Hitler of Cloudland. That's not a traditional superhero story, but it's the best they could do. Outside of that, every genre that had any kind of appeal to kids was being undertaken. So funny animals have a wonderful history in in the Golden Age, even though they are still a niche interest. And there's an, an intersection, too, because funny animals become popular enough. And they've got enough recurring characters that funny animal superheroes start popping up. In some of the mainstream, Captain Marvel has Hoppy the Marvel Bunny, who's looks like sort of looks like a beefed up Bugs Bunny in a Captain Marvel suit flies around fighting crime. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a personal favorite who's the terrific What's It. Yeah. This was, a, this was a lazy turtle named Turtle McSnurtle who is given, a, given superpowers sort of as a bet between the universal force of good and the universal force of evil. He can run incredibly quickly. He dresses a little like another DC comic superhero called The Flash. Yeah. And his adventures involve just cute tricks you can do if you could run really fast. Like, he gets to meet himself several times. Because he's running so quickly, he catches up. I love the juxtaposition of the fact that he's a turtle who's fast. Yeah, and he's incredibly quickly. He has a conscience who berates him constantly. In his last appearance, he murders it. Oh, no! Old comics are interesting. There's a lot of grim chuckles, too. Well, I'm wondering as well, you know, like recipes and sewing patterns that we see in magazines at the time from the 30s, 40s, 50s, even a a little bit earlier as well. Do we see in comics, you know, some of those big issues in the world driving what we saw featured? Like you mentioned Hitler. So that is obviously a huge talking point during that time. Yeah, Hitler obviously comes up a lot, but a lot of comics bank themselves on messages of universal brotherhood. It's not uncommon to have... Your hero, your whether that's a superhero or a pirate captain or a, a, a talking bee, turn to the reader and explain that all men are brothers and need to be treated that way or to be reminded of the golden rule. There was a lot of unity in American comics in the 1960s. They worked hard to teach the idea that all men were created equal. You get a lot of the Constitution thrown at you in those early issues. Solidarity among the common man is a really inspiring common trope in the sort of message of comic books through the 1940s. Also, there's a lot of physical uh, fitness stuff, a lot of superheroes telling you to drink your milk or action heroes telling you to make sure to exercise every day and then giving you some really bad exercise advice. There was a hero in the 1940s who used to give judo advice. She was named the Black Cat, 
And if you tried any of the judo moves, she, su she suggested you would just break somebody's arm. <laughs> They're all poor. You never learn judo from still images. They did have a, um, a real trend to like kind of share the same conversation space. And I think it's because they were very aware that they were speaking really to a young audience. All right, back to Gone and Forgotten, because I don't know about you, but I want to hear about more comic book heroes from the 30s onwards. The website, as I said, has been running for 21 years. It started at a time where making a website was all about HTML code, crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. And through his research, John Morris has found some pretty incredible characters like a heap of tough women and even a Muslim superhero. When comics were created back in the 1930s and 40s, the original ones, they also didn't really have a market yet. They were just sending it out to everybody. And they didn't have, um, I suppose, a set crew of people making these comics. It wasn't, this, uh, it wasn't artists and writers who had been around for a month or a year or a decade. They were all new. Everybody was starting. Everything was worth trying. And because of that, you do get something like Kismet, the first Muslim superhero in comics, or you get uh, Madame Fatale, the first cross-dressing superhero in comics, who had 65 consecutive, I think 65 consecutive adventures, dressed as a woman, pretending to be a 65-year-old woman, even though he was a 30-some-year-old man hunting for his lost daughter. Oh. That's an interesting comic. A particular favorite of mine, uh, Comics McCormick, which was just a kind of kids' fun adventure comic by Ed McWhelan, has a scene where the kids who make up the core of the group are debating letting a girl into their comic reading club. <laughs> and three of, the, three of the boys say, no, girls don't belong in comics. And Comics McCormick gives them a speech as to why girls belong reading comics. And again, this is 1941, 1942. And we are now once again watching you know, a, a movement, at least in American comics, of, of trying to limit the amount of diversity and make mm. fewer comics for women and such. But anything was possible. You'll get interesting characters like um, Tiny. He was a sidekick to a, a superhero called Ragman back in the 40s. And uh, he was a big black fella. So when he starts his, his career, he's like, unfortunately, a lot of other black or African-American characters in, in media in, uh, of the era. And he speaks in a step and fetched voice. He's cowardly. He's very subservient to his boss. But something happened behind the scenes there, and the creative team changed. And the idea of Tiny changed along the way. So all of a sudden, Tiny stops talking like that. He just gets a, he gets a, a southern accent. He starts speaking in fully formed sentences. He wasn't doing that before. He dresses as nicely as his boss does, never does that before. He starts acting like his partner, never does that before. Starts being listed in the masthead, Ragman and Tiny, the human hurricane or something like that, and becomes kind of like a partner in the book on a degree that we not only didn't really see in comics of the era, but it's kind of still rare to see today. It's amazing because it's clearly not driven by the consumerism that we see driving comic books now, and that has allowed that freedom, as you were mentioning earlier, to really start experimenting with these characters and create characters that are really interesting, but there is, I, I just can't ever see them selling comics today. That is true, although I've thought that before and I've been incredibly well surprised. Oh, good. Uh, there is a, there's a creation called Stardust the Super Wizard, who was the product of a creator named Fletcher Hanks, who was a very troubled man, and whose comics are utterly bizarre. They are hard to follow. They involve 
transitory, whimsical, godlike beings enacting weird vengeance on evil, like taking a, a man who tried to conquer the earth and making his head very large and then putting his head in the hands of a giant head-eating cannibal that lives between the stars. <laughs> That's your average Fletcher Hanks story. That's not even an exceptional one. And his characters have not only found a new life in the modern day, the reprints come in these big, beautiful volumes in there. They're collector's items, and they are they are absolutely possessed by people who love this art form on, a, on a, an elevated level. But I've seen those characters that Fletcher Hanks created being used in other stories, and because they're all public domain now. So they're really successful stories, and some people are actually able to get a good critically acclaimed run out of it for what it is. Just how easy are some of these lesser-known vintage comics to find today in 2018? The nice thing about public domain is that um, so many of the comics have fallen into that. We have collectors around the world who scan them and archive them. You can literally read 2,000 old comics that previously you never would have come across in your life, even if you had searched every day of it, just by logging on to like the Digital Comics Museum. And you'll have found somebody has scanned it and saved it for you. So that's a big help. Other than that, you'd be surprised at how little respect is given to some of these old comics. So you can go to a convention, go to a thrift store, go to a, a, any used bookstore, go to their, they'll have a bin somewhere of $1 comics. Sometimes you can find these things. And I mean, you can find the weird ones that were produced a few years ago too, but you can find, a re I found um, Dell Comics in the 1960s tried to launch a series of superheroes based on universal movies, monsters, Dracula, Werewolf, and Frankenstein. Right. These are kind of famous in the in the weird comic community. I found all of them for twenty five cents a piece, at a, in a used comic bin. No way. Just wandered in, thought, let's see what these guys have. Found them, bought them, walked out. They're always they're there because a lot of people, frankly and wrongly, look at them as trash. Do they have value? Are there collectors who are who are looking for these things, looking to look after them? And is there a bit of a community around vintage comic books? There absolutely is. In comics collecting, there are sort of two branches. There's speculating, which I don't I don't do much of. My father loved comic speculating. That became his life. Um, I'm part of the collectors who are doing sort of a curated collection. We're trying to hold on to these books. And like you say, we're protecting them so that they can make it to the next decade or two decades. Especially these older books, you know, they were they were meant to be thrown away. They were, they were reading material for children during the paper drives of the 1940s during World War II. Hundreds of thousands of comic books just vanished to be used for the war effort to be recycled. Mm. So, um, yeah, they can be worth quite a bit. Uh, depends on what you're looking for. I've personally found comics that, from the 1940s in particular, that I've been looking for for years and finally stumbled across them for 10 bucks, 15 bucks. It's not a case that they're so rare that they're wildly expensive. It's just that they're really hard to find. And if you're lucky, nobody wants it except you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure is true of all collecting. So do I dare ask how big your comic book collection is? Do you know how many you have? I will tell you that now I don't because I don't have many. I got rid of my entire collection, I think, 10 years ago now. I think I, promised, I allowed myself to keep 25 comics that I loved the most. But before that, I had 15,000. Oh, wow. I had to keep them in a storage unit that was three miles from my house. So if I wanted to read a comic book, I had to go <laughs> walk or drive or bike three miles. 
go up two flights of stairs, go into my room, get the comics, and come back home. <laughs> and hope that you can uh, so find just, the ones you wanted. Oh, I, boy, I tell you, I'm obsessively organized. So, Good. yeah, I would find everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very brave thing to then move that on, move a collection like that on, which has taken years to curate and produce. It felt, it, there gets to a point where your collection becomes a burden. It was one night I was just thinking about going to the storage unit to go pick up some comics, and I realized, yeah, I'm going to go pick up three comics and read them, and that leaves 14,997 unread comics in there that probably should be in somebody else's hands. Yeah. So I donated a lot of them to the library. I sold a few online. The rest went to my friend Charlie, who owns a comic shop in, in Tucson, and hopefully every every one of them's found a home, I hope. Somebody's holding my beloved copy of Hansi, the girl who loved the swastika, and I hope they're enjoying it. <laughs> All right, Superman lovers, I've made you wait long enough. Now is the time. As well as having gone and forgotten, John Morris is also publishing, in chronological order, every comic appearance of Superman ever. Why? Because Superman has always been there for John. The superhero you know and love was created in 1938, so there are generations of men, women and children who have only known life with Superman whether that's in the comics, on TV, or in the movies. But John loves him for more than just being there. He's also the most purely noble and, I suppose, ethically forthright superhero. Even if something were to happen to make that not true, to compromise his morality, his image is still of the number one top clean-eared Boy Scout of superheroes. And that's really appealing when you're young, because this is a very powerful figure who is who does only good things with a tremendous amount of power. It's one of the most um, heavily inundated pop cultural images worldwide. You can go almost anywhere in the world if you're wearing a Superman shirt, you're going to meet somebody else wearing a Superman shirt. So it encouraged me to start studying him more and looking into how he's represented in other countries and, and what the story was with the creators behind him. And the more I read about him, the more I just find out that there's a whole interesting history and social impact surrounding the character and some some semiotics that are built into the fella and a a raft of ethical considerations and cultures have actually moved around him in one fashion or another. There's limitless numbers of things to examine with him, and so I can't stop. If we look at 1938, when he when Superman broke onto the scene when the first comic was released, did, did he look similar to what he does now? And was he sort of an instant success? He was a phenomenon from day one. Right. Uh, that cover on Action Comics number one, which depicts really kind of an indistinct figure in a startling red cape, smashing a green sedan against rocks, while apparently the former occupants of it are running around screaming in absolute terror. This is not the most uh, eye-catching cover I've ever seen, but all the more eye-catching ones I've seen explain what's going on. You know, there's a, a man saving a woman, and he's got a ray gun, and he's shooting like a bird with a man's face or something, which is one I've seen. You can kind of get that story because there's enough context there to say, oh, we're on an alien planet. When you see a, a weird guy in a cape smashing a car and everybody's freaking out, there's no explanation for that. You have no choice but to pick that book up and read it which I'm, I'm guessing is part, in no small part anyway, 
Superman's immediate success. But uh, as for what he looked like, no, he really didn't in a lot of ways. His costume was very different. It was simpler. It was based on leotards. It was meant to look a little like a vaudeville or a circus costume. The Superman of 1938 has a smile, but he has, I think, what we'd consider a smile more appropriate for Batman in the modern day, if you follow. Because he was a very grim figure. He, his, his job was to terrify corrupt politicians and corrupt business leaders and gangsters and racketeers into doing right by their fellow man. If Superman smiled, it means he was about to do something like heft you over his shoulder, jump out of a 16-story window, and run along telephone poles until you passed out. <laughs> it always meant he was going to do something terrifying. The art also was a little more appropriate to what we might think a Batman comic would be nowadays. It was very gritty. It was dark. There are a lot of shadows. It do- It looks like a completely other creation. I guess when you've been going since 1938 as well, you do have to get a little bit creative mm-hmm. with, with storylines. Going back through your archive where you post chronologically all, all of Superman's appearances, I think it was about the 19, mid-1960s, where um, Superman decided to marry two women. So, you know, like, there, there's always been a, some twists and turns in his story through the comics. Oh, my God. Okay. I have a very clear memory of the very first comic book I have ever read, and that is a reprint of the story you just mentioned, in which Clark Kent, Lois Lane, and Lana Lang, his childhood friend who also works with them at the Daily Planet or wherever, WGBS, I think. Yeah. Irrelevant. They're all together. <laughs> They're off doing some kind of news thing. They're driving along the mist-shrouded valleys of, I believe, Wales. This is important. Then their car plummets, basically, into the mist-shrouded valley, and they discover a Viking village hidden in this Welsh valley, where there is a rule that all women have to be married. I don't know why this comes up so quickly. And even these two women who have just stumbled into the village, or they have to marry some kind of creepy old weird Viking. So Lana just whip, grabs Clark immediately. It's like, I'm married to him. And her plan is because Lois and Lana had a real feud going on in the comics for about 10 straight years. Mm. She wants Lois to go marry the schlub. <laughs> Super Clark decides, well, all right, I have to teach people a lesson because in the 1960s, Superman was like Ricky Ricardo. All he did was teach his wife or teach his girlfriend lessons. Uh, so he changes to Superman out of sight, says, oh, I flew down here to rescue you guys, but something about the mists above me means I can't leave, so I guess I have to stay here. Oh, the girls have to be married? Well, I'll marry you, Lois. And the rest of the story is Superman pretending to be Lois's husband while being Lana's husband is Clark. Mm-hmm. Lana and Lois fighting and just Superman laughing about it. It's weirdly mean-spirited, but it's incredibly engaging. And I don't know why that story in particular sticks in my memory, but yep. That's, my, that's the first one I remember reading. Where does a comic like that, a storyline like that, fit in the greater Superman story that we were seeing told at that time? Or is it just <laughs> a random offshoot? It's an interesting period. Weisinger's stories are subject to interpretation in the sense that they're, he claims that they're all stories that someone, some kid in the neighborhood said would be a good idea for Superman to do. But when you look at it, you think there might actually be a psychological component here. Uh, Alan Moore called Superman's Silver Age Mort Weisinger's therapy because a lot of psychological stuff's coming out. The reason I say this is because, particularly at the time, and in American culture at the time, there is a chauvinistic streak. 
Weisinger was not shy about saying that girls should only read Superman comics as long as they have no advice. And he was not shy about saying Lois Lane was the Superman comics girls were supposed to read. And to that end, Superman was a patronizing jackass uh, for a long time when it came to dealing with Lois Lane. It is a larger part of the story because that quality of his behavior, that, that type of personality, is what a lot of people are thinking about when they think about Superman. And they think about him as kind of like a lecturing busybody or as a by-the-rules Boy Scout who's you know, intolerable. I suppose there's a better way to look at those stories. Now that I've reread them for the comic, I'm actually a tremendous fan of those old Lois Lane stories. But specifically for the stories in which Lana Lang and Lois Lane are trying to kill each other. <laughs> which sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. They are tremendously great comics because these two female characters are, in, are so compelling in their absolute hatred for one another. It passes the Bechdel test on many occasions. It's a storyline that's not uncommon that we see in, in all sorts of, of dramas and comedies and movies and TV shows now between women. Oh, sure. I, I honestly think there's a possibility to revive a Lois Lana feud in a way that isn't demeaning or that isn't patronizing. Mm. Because for them to, uh, I suppose I should mention that, you know, I say, for instance, they're literally trying to kill each other. They're trying to remove each other as rivals for one thing or another. But they're willing to do, Lana literally tried to trap Lois in a time machine set for ancient Greece. That's pretty severe. <laughs> but I'm interested to learn more about that character. You know, we talk a lot about when you discuss heroes versus villains. It's generally accepted common knowledge. The villains are more interesting people, more interesting characters. Yeah. Because they can do more. When Lana Lang and Lois Lane were at each other's throats, they were villains. And they were incredibly fascinating. And I would love to see somebody really write those up in a, in a modern context. So for you, what's your favorite Superman era? Uh, it bounces around. You know, of course, I grew up in the 70s. And so I have a great affection for... Uh, the early Julie Schwartz years, he was the first editor to take over from Weisinger. And his Superman was hip and contemplative. And I like that the Superman of that era was one that frequently gave into frustration. He would get frustrated and then kind of shake it off and go do his job. But that was good because the appeal of Superman or the real meaning of it is that, he, again, he has all these tremendous powers and only uses them for other people. Mm. So it's good to see him doubt on occasion and good to see him go, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I should do this and then decide to do the right thing anyway because, like I say, as a kid growing up, that's super important. That being said, 1940 Superman stories are amazing. Like that first four years, I've read the entire block of them a few dozen times. The relationship between Lois Clark and Superman is thrilling. There's a real uh, feeling in the early stages that you don't know what's coming next. They don't have a lot of the conceits like kryptonite and such. So it's really just Superman testing himself against menaces wildly thrown against him. And then the 90s, because um, <laughs> uh, that's just a weird sort of heavily theatrical era for Superman. Because that's when he died, that's when he came back, that's when there were four Supermen. There's always something kind of interesting to see in that era. Superman seems like a patriotic character, even though he's arguably not. There's something about the cape, there's something about the colors, and there's something about the personality that um, even though 
we don't add the American way to that truth, justice, and the American way business until the 1950s, he always does kind of seem a little American. And because of that, he reacts the way America reacts to big uh, issues. Where I'm going with this is that when Superman debuts in 1938, he's an anti-hero and he's a sort of Robin Hood type. The cops want him. He is, he's not known to most people. He terrifies everybody he sees because, you know, he looks like a lunatic and he can lift a train. He, he literally fights cops, fights the army. He runs into other countries and steals their their leaders and makes them fight for his entertainment, more or less. <laughs> but by the time America is starting to get into World War II or paying attention to World War II, Superman changes. And there are two stories in the mid-40s that always really stick with me. He fights a villain literally named Robin Hood, whose shtick is he steals from the rich and gives to the poor. And Superman lectures him about how that's the wrong way to do things, and actually you need to work with the police and work with the, uh, work with the government to make change happen. That's a heck of a change from the guy who like literally teased the army into destroying a slum. And then likewise, there's another thing happening around the same time because uh, rather shamefully America had established internment camps for its Japanese citizens or citizens of Japanese descent. Superman advocates for them and talks about what a great idea they are. And he and Lois agree, this is for the safety of our Japanese citizens. So Superman, within six years of his debut, goes from cop-fighting rebel to line-toting stooge, I suppose. Mm. And then a few years later, he'll go on to be more of a romantic character. Then a few years later, he'll go, and that coincides really with when superheroes were losing their appeal. Uh, he'll start becoming a science fiction character. He'll do a lot of traveling to other planets and finding aliens and such, and that'll coincide with the rise of the interest in science fiction and the space race. Uh, every few years, it's a wholly different character. There's been a lot of change when it comes to comic books from the 1930s until now, from characters to commercialization, the type of artwork we see, and what fans expect from their favourite characters. And if you want an easy way to get your head around vintage comics and characters and storylines of the past, John Morris's new book is being released this week. It's the third book in a series of um, really what we were talking about, of weird old characters from the 19... Well, from comics through the last 80 years. So what's it called? Oh, uh, this is the League of Regrettable Sidekicks, the sequel to the Leagues of Re League of Regrettable Superheroes and the Legion of Regrettable Supervillains. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, people can, can get all the set. They can buy the set now. Yeah, you can get all three now. You've definitely inspired me to go thrift shopping and look... Hopefully, look, I'm not sure how prevalent they were in uh, in Australia in this time, so I'm going to need to go and do some more research on that, but see if I can track down some uh, some vintage uh, comic books that have been thrown in a box of junk in the back of an antique store somewhere and, and give them a read. John, it's been really great to, to speak with you on the podcast this week. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you so much. That's it for this episode of This Retro Life. You can find us on Wooshka, iTunes and Stitcher where you can subscribe and of course rate and review us so it's easier for other guys and gals to find this podcast. To get more information on today's guest, head to our website thisretrolife.com or search This Retro Life on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We have some photos and videos and behind the scenes and a whole heap more retro fun so do come and check us out. 
As always, if you're a vintage guy or gal from any era and into anything from cars to collectibles, we'd love to hear from you. Go to thisretrolife.com and drop us a line. Until next time, I'm Kaya Handley. Thanks for listening to This Retro Life.